Uh, thank you. It's really nice to be with you, and uh, I know that we're, you know, not a huge crowd here tonight, but it reminds me of those words of Shakespeare when he was talking about a young lady. He said, though she be small, yet she be fierce. So I'm expecting you to be fierce, all right, as we're together here tonight. Well, it was uh, 1229 a.m. on August the 29th, 1978, that our daughter first came into the world. I'll never forget the moment because she was our first child, and uh, we'd been, you know, just a couple for a couple of years at that point. And when she came out, I will never forget, it was like everything changed forever. It's like everything about our lives changed. Our sleep habits, you know, the way that we ate, uh, how we looked at life. It was just, it was amazing to see how much that absolutely changed everything. And I remember seeing a couple that was in here with twins, and I looked at them, you know, uh, at the last service and said, and I bet it really changed for you too when you had two at one time. And they said, oh, Yeah. It was a big deal. So there are all kinds of life experiences that are like that, right? We have life experiences that absolutely change us forever. When you get that pink slip or you've lost that job or you get the lab report back. And man, when that happens, it's like everything shifts and everything changes. One of those life experiences is when someone surrenders their life to Jesus Christ for the first time. When that happens, they begin to experience an entirely new life a different kind of life. Their eternity is assured all of a sudden. Their eternal trajectory has changed. They have a new moral compass. They have new motivations for living. There are new things that begin happening to them. They have a sense of identity that's totally different than it ever was before. And it just simply, just everything changes, right? One of the things that change in the life of someone who surrenders their life to Christ is how they conduct their human relationships how they conduct the relationships with one another. And that's one of the things that we're going to be looking at today. So when you think about it, we're in part 20 of this message series called Connecting to Church. It's the book of Ephesians. We've been studying through it. And uh, we've been studying through chapter 5 for quite a while now. Over the last couple of weeks, uh, I think we've actually been focusing on just a couple of verses. Uh, we've looked at Paul's command in chapter 5 where he says, And do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Right? And then what flows out of that command are four result statements, four result phrases. You know, Pastor Brian talked several weeks ago about the idea of the, the music and singing to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart, and being thankful to God, right? And last week, Pastor Lance uh, discussed the whole aspect of submission, submitting yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. So that's another result that flows out of being filled by the Spirit. And it's that final result that actually launches us into a new section in the book of Ephesians where the Apostle Paul is going to talk about how that aspect of submission fits into all of our different human relationships. Now, Pastor Lance talked about it in kind of broad strokes, how, how uh, uh, submission kind of works uh, in a broad kind of sense. But now we're going to scope it down. We're going to be looking at how it, how it functions in relationships. And Paul begins with the core life relationship of marriage core life relationship of marriage. Now, when you begin to think about it, as we begin to look at this, it's important for us to begin to realize that this is going to be the driving force all the way to chapter 6, verse 9, this idea of submission. And so we want to make sure that we take a really close look at it. And as we start with this whole idea of marriage, we're opening up this weekend a three-part series on the subject of marriage, a more perfect union. And we're going to spend some time looking at this one section, hitting it from some different angles, all right? 
So I want to encourage you, if you want to have a Bible with you, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be working through that. But let me begin say it this way. There is no relationship, no relationship more fundamental to human flourishing and human thriving than the relationship of marriage. Nothing more fundamental. Marriage is a bedrock, primary building block and cornerstone of all social order. In almost every society across the globe for all time, the marriage relationship, a husband and a wife, has been the central focus and the building block of all other social order in our world. And yet, the institution of marriage today has never been shakier. I don't think I have to tell you that marriage is under extreme pressure in our world today. And there are all kinds of external forces that that um, are forcing us to begin to think about it in a different way. There are external forces in our culture where people are trying to redefine it, trying to reform it, trying to restructure what that marriage relationship would look like. There are some people who would love to even abolish it, just do away with the whole thing altogether. And those external forces are there. And when you think about how our culture views marriage, it has a very, very low view. In fact, I came across a, a, a picture that I thought really depicted how our culture thinks about marriage today in our world. And just to give you the dread of doom there with that music, all right? Game over. <laughs> when two people get married, it's game over. It's like when you come to that commitment, everyone starts saying to themselves, well, say goodbye to your freedom. Say goodbye to your independence. Say goodbye to self-determinism. Say goodbye to your sense of identity. You've got to say goodbye to all those things. It's almost as if we treat it like your life is over. Now, along with those external forces, there are internal forces that are at work too. Internal forces inside of human beings. Things like selfishness. Things like pride. Things like ego. Things like self-centeredness that are also militating against good relationships in the marriage relationship. And it's no secret, man, that marital satisfaction right now is at an all-time low. I've heard it said that, that marriage is a three-ring circus. Engagement ring, wedding ring, suffering. And, uh, but it's not true. <laughs> it's not true. One of the key internal forces that we're going to talk about tonight is this internal force this internal kind of thing that goes on inside of us of the natural competition between men and women. I thought it would be really fun to play, you know, Battle of the Sexes here, if we could do that in a, in a kind of a fun way here, but we just don't have time to do it. And I would, I, every time I've done this at other places, oh, it's just uh, people have a, a, a fun time and there's that natural, you see the natural competition that's there. Um, but when that's going on inside your marriage, it's not fun. And it's not funny at all. When that's taking place, people are really, really hurting. Interestingly enough, the Bible traces the origins of natural competition all the way back to the fall of human beings in Genesis chapter 3. And if you have a Bible, you can flip back there with me to Genesis chapter 3. After the man and woman express their independence from God and shatter and break their relationship with God, God speaks to them about what life is going to be like for them now that they are fallen human beings. And as he speaks to them, he speaks first to the serpent, then he speaks to the woman in chapter 3, verse 16. And I want you to listen to these words. To the woman, he, that is God, said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, and your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now the key word in this text is the word desire. 
What is the woman's desire here? And scholars have debated this back and forth through the centuries. Some say that the desire here is a romantic desire, a, a desire for her to bond with him, that she wants to bond with her husband, that she'll, she'll still want to bond with him, and even has sexual overtones at times is what they think. And I'd like to suggest to you that that's one way to use the word. In fact, the word teshukah, which is the Hebrew word, is used three times in the Old Testament. It's used once here in Genesis chapter 3. It's used once in the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs. And there it does have a romantic kind of cast to it. And it's used only one other place. And that's in Genesis chapter 4, only 16 verses later. In one chapter later. And what I want to suggest to you is that that word desire might not be her sexual desire or desire to bond with her husband. But that it might be something very, very different. In Hebrew chapter 4, verse 7, that same word is used. And it's used when sin is trying to take over Cain. Yeah, I don't know if you remember the text. Cain comes to bring his offering to God. God rejects Cain's offering. But he accepts his brother Abel's offering. And man, Cain is ticked off. He is seething inside. And God speaks to him and says, what's wrong with your countenance, Cain? If you don't do the right thing, won't that be good? Then he says these words, but sin's desire is for you but you must master it. Sin's desire is for you, but you must master it. What was sin's desire for Cain? To control him, to make him do what sin wanted him to do, to influence him, to possess him in such a way that Cain would have no other place to go except the way that sin wanted him to go. And what I want to suggest to you is that as fallen human beings, what Genesis tells us is simply this. When two people, man and wife and woman, get together in a marriage relationship, they will have a power struggle. If you've been married more than a day, you know this. There will be a power struggle that goes on inside the relationship. Who's going to set the tone? Who's going to control things? Who's going to make the decisions? And what kinds of things will they make decisions about? Who's going to do this? And these two people are going to start vying with one another as to how they're going to work out the control in this relationship. And what results in it is just a disordered view of marriage, a disordered view of what marriage is all about. Most couples that I know would give their right arm to have a better relationship, would give their right arm to have a relationship that is deep and meaningful and feels like they're bonded together. Man, they would, they would love to do those kinds of things. So if you'd like to fill in the blank on your outline, here's the fill in the blank for you tonight. The pathway to a better more fulfilling marriage is through the practice of mutual submission. Let me say that again. The pathway to a better, more fulfilling marriage is through the practice of mutual submission. And I know the moment I say the word submission, that becomes highly inflammatory for many people. That's like a fighting word. That's like, how can you use that word in today's culture? But I want you to notice that I use the word mutual submission. Not unilateral. Submission is always a two-way street in the marriage relationship. It is mutual together. We don't think of it that way, I know. Our normal thinking about this whole subject of submission is, well, it means that somebody has to be the boss. You know, someone's going to have to be the boss. I, my four-year-old um, grandson was at our house a couple of weeks ago, and he's, he's just downplaying, and, and we're talking, and, and you know, we're not talking at all about family or marriage or relationships or anything like that. We're talking like dinosaurs and trucks, right? And, um, and all of a sudden, he's playing, and he's, he's continuing to play, and he says, 
hey, Pops, he said, who's the boss in your house? Never looks up, keeps playing. It's one of those things that like comes out of thin air, right? And I looked, uh, and I looked up at my wife, and she looked at me, and she gave me the eye. And I said, both of us are. And not even looking up, doesn't skip a beat, he says, my mom's the boss in our, mar- in our family. <laughs> and I'm like, that's how people think of it. Someone has to be the boss, right? But what I want to suggest to you is there might be a different meaning in the text that we're going to look at tonight regarding this whole thing. And this weekend, as we start this series, we're going to come to a passage in Ephesians 5. I th- what I hope will happen is it'll transform your perspective about what mutual submission is all about. And then it might give you some practical things to hold on to as we look at this passage. And it returns us to God's original intention for what he wanted marriages to look like and how he wanted people to experience life and joy and peace and comfort and togetherness and collaboration in this most important relationship in all of life. So I'm aware, I just want you to know this up front, I'm aware that many of you come here and maybe you are in a very struggling relationship right now. And I know you're hurting. And if that's going on, I understand. It is tough. This is the hardest relationship in all of life. But what I hope will happen is you will get a ray of hope for your relationship. And I know that many of you may be here and you've had a failed marriage. And there's a lot of hurt with that. And there's shame that's in the background. And you don't feel like a complete person. And you feel like damaged goods. And I get that. And I also realize that there are some of you who are young adults who have not yet had the experience of being married. And you look at this passage, you go, well, this isn't for me tonight. But what I hope will happen is that maybe you'll look at this and go, hey, there's some things here that I want to, man, I want to build my life around so that I become the right person when marriage comes along for me. Wherever you are at, I hope that what you'll find in this is some some healing and some hope for you as we look at this passage uh, this evening. So I just want to zero in on the concept of mutual submission, and particularly submission. And I'm just going to tell you up front, I'm going to get a little Bible nerdy about this, as Pastor Lance says. So I'm going to get into the details, but there's a reason why. One, there's been a gross misunderstanding of what submission is all about, and particularly mutual submission in marriage. And two, the devil is always in the details, right? If you don't get the details right, and there's a lot of details in the Greek language in which Paul originally wrote this, if you don't get the details right, sometimes you can go to the wrong uh, conclusion and arrive at the wrong conclusion. So look at Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 21, and we're going to kind of go through the passage together a little bit. You notice Paul writes that final result, submitting yourselves or submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. All right, so here I go. Here's some details for you. In the Greek language, this is in what we call the middle voice. And the genius of the middle voice is the middle voice uh, expresses that the subject or the person who's doing the action is involved in the action. They're a voluntary participant in it, and they have a high interest in the action that's going on. So literally, we should translate this with these words, submitting yourselves to one another. Submitting yourselves to one another. That's the fourth result of being filled with the Spirit, submitting yourselves to one another, right? And that's not necessarily the marriage relationship, that's any relationship, submitting yourselves to one another. Now, in verse 22, in our passage, Paul goes on and he says this, wives to husbands. There's no verb there in the Greek language. He just simply says, wives to husbands. 
So we are forced to draw the action from the preceding verb, submitting yourselves, and it would translate something like this. Therefore, submitting yourselves, wives, submitting yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. Okay? What does this mean? Well, here's a couple of things that it means, and we're now going to look, dive, kind of dive deeper into the word itself. The word submission is a compound verb in the Greek language. It comes from two words, hupo and then tasho. Hupo means to be placed under or, or to be under. Tasho means to be placed. So to place something under something else, you want to put it that way. It's also from what we call a word group. It's called the tag word group. And the tag word group has the unique status of talking about arrangements, that something is arranged a certain way, of talking about an order to things or an arranged type of order. And it's not necessarily always hierarchical. It's just an arrangement of order. And this is where I think sometimes we get the idea in the Bible and how it sometimes gets taught wrongly that you know, men are supposed to be you know, at the top and women are under them. It just expresses an arrangement, okay? And the idea under the, of the arrangement is that which is supportive. So I want you to think about it, if you can, this way. And I'm going to give you a word picture. Think about it like a table. If I had a table up here on stage, you would see a tabletop, right? Supported by table legs which have been placed under that tabletop. That tabletop cannot stand without those legs. It's placed under. It supports the entire structure. And if you take the tabletop away, those legs cannot stand by themselves either. They are mutually together. They are ordered to one another. And it's not hierarchical. It's what we call a functional arrangement. It's simply talking about the way things have been arranged by God in the marriage relationship. And I can tell you some things that it doesn't mean. Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that someone is a doormat. It doesn't mean that someone is a yes person. It doesn't mean that somebody is a slave. It doesn't mean that somebody has to simply follow orders blindly or that they're even following the orders of someone else. But that's how it's often taught. Now I'm going to get even more nerdy, if that's possible. This word is a present tense participle in the Greek language, which has the idea of continuing motion, continually submitting yourselves to one another, continually submitting wives to your husbands, continually submitting yourselves to one another is the idea, remember? Wives to your husbands. It's very reflexive. It's highly interactive. It's highly two-way, give and take, back and forth in this. And here's what it means, talking with one another, deliberating, making decisions together, offering advice, insight, perspective, bringing to the table your unique talents, skills, and abilities, both people coming to that table, and both of them supplying these things to one another. And the most clear thing I want to be about on this is this, it's not a command. Both of these are voluntary. This is not a command, husbands, submit your wives. Or wives, be submissive. It is a participle. It flows out of a whole different command. Be filled with the Spirit. And when that happens, here's the result. Submitting yourselves to one another. Wives, excuse me, wives to your husbands, as you would to the Lord. So, as you move on through here, one of the things that we begin to see is that this is going to flow two ways. Submission, mutual submission, it flows two ways. Now, in verses 22 through 24, and then also a little bit in verse 33, Paul's going to talk about how a woman expresses submission in a relationship. And he's going to spend about 3.5 verses on that. 
For the rest of the passage, in verses 25 through 33, Paul's going to talk to the men, and that's about 8.5 verses. So it's a lot more weighted towards the men on this, all right? So we're going to look at both of these things as we go through the passage. So look with me at chapter 5, starting in verse 22. Wives, submitting yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And notice here he's saying that they should be submissive to their husbands, not someone else's husband, not to other men. This is just restricted to the marriage relationship. And there's a reason behind this. Did you notice it? The husband is the head. The husband is the head. Well, hold on, Paul. You've just gotten, you've just gotten through saying that's not true. Well, hold on just a moment. What does that mean, that he's the head? I'd like you to think about it a little bit differently as well. The word head, used in the New Testament, and oftentimes even in the Old Testament, can denote several different things. Sometimes it denotes someone who's in authority. But rarely is this word used in that sense in the Old Testament. Instead, it uses the idea of an origin or source of something. Like when we talk about headwaters, the headwaters of something. It is something which is the origin of something, and then it continues to feed it, and it continues to resource it. So think about it this way. Christ, and we're to love as Christ loved the church, right, was the originator of this community called the church. He was the one who started it. It was started in his name, by his Holy Spirit. He's the originator and the source of this thing called the church, and he loves her desperately, but he is the head, and not in the sense of direction. They didn't think about direction, like, oh, he's given all the orders, and so the church just follows it, right, like a body. No, no, he's talking about the fact that as the head, he is the source and the resourcer of everything that happens in this marriage relationship. And Paul summarizes this with another clue that gives us a hint of what that means for him to be the head. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, I think it's very interesting that when Paul summarizes this entire section, he doesn't reiterate or reuse the word submitting. Instead, he uses a different word in Greek. He uses the word to respect, to fear. It's derived from the word to fear, but it's to have a, 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 a very solid respect for this individual. So, ladies, could I just talk with you for a minute about this? The key to a man's heart is not love, it's respect. How a man hears love is through respect. I know that sometimes as women you think about love as kind of this emotional attachment and there should be an emotional attachment that your husband has to you. There should be an emotional attachment you have to him. But what he craves and what really communicates love to him is when he is respected. And what do I mean by that? When he is believed in by his wife, when she trusts him, when she communicates to him that he is capable and able, that he's competent in what he does, when she communicates those things to a man, it is like rocket fuel to his soul. It just fills him. When he knows his wife believes in him, she will follow him, she will be with him wherever he decides to go and wherever they decide to go together. When he knows that, man, it just does things to a man's soul that you can't even imagine. But if you belittle him, if you criticize him, if you humiliate him, if you try to take over, if you nag him, 
Well, good luck with that. A man will do two things when that happens. He will fight you or he will go passive. He'll just back off, he'll shut down, and he'll just say, okay, I'm out. And he might not physically be out, but mentally and emotionally, he's out. And man, neither one is a good option for you. It's why Paul is so adamant about this. A woman expresses this mutual submission in respecting her husband. And in basically in her heart saying, man, I'm with you. I'm with you. Now Paul turns to the, to the husbands. And for the rest of the passage, he's going to talk mainly to husbands here. So starting in verse 25, follow along with me. Here's how husbands express mutual submission. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she might be holy and without blemish. So how does a man express mutual submission? I can just boil it down into one word, love. Six times in 8.5 verses, Paul will use this word, love. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And I need to point this out. Never in the Bible, not once, will you ever see it said from Paul or anyone else that husbands are to submit or make sure their wives submit to them. Never. Which means that this is something new. This is something different than they had in the ancient world. In fact, just the opposite. Paul suggests a whole different model of the way husbands should live in a marriage relationship. And it's this. Love your wife like Jesus loved the church. This would be a stunning departure from the way that marriage was practiced in the ancient Roman and Greek cultures. A stunning departure from it. It would have been so different, so novel, so new, you wouldn't find it anyplace else. See, in the ancient world, men did not marry for love. They married for legacy. They married for children. They married to have an heir someday for their family and to, pro, or, or, or to, to promote their, their line, their family line. That's why they got married. Demosthenes, who was a Greek, statesman, a Greek and Roman statesman, said this, We have courtesans for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and for having a faithful guardian for all our household affairs. That's how they looked at marriage in the ancient world for men. Paul suggests something very different, and embedded in this passage are four things, four ways that men can express love to their wives, and they're very, very practical. I want to give them to you here. First of all, they do this through the sacrificial surrender of their ego, their rights, their comfort, and their convenience. Love her as Christ loved the church, having sacrificed or given himself up for her that he might sanctify her. Through the sacrificial surrender of ego, rights, comfort, and convenience, a voluntary surrender of these things. So, guys... How many of you love home decorating, interior decorating in your homes? Good. I don't either. <laughs> I, have, I can't tell you how much uh, that home decorating thing, I'm just like, okay. And, um, and I can't tell you the number of times I've been to, you know, 
home goods and Crate and Barrel and Pottery Barn and all these different places. And at first, when we first got married, I was kind of like, I would do it begrudging. I'm like, oh, okay. You know, kind of walk through, be disinterested, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, and, and it obviously communicated something to my wife, Sherry. It took me a long time to realize that the interior of our home was a reflection of her heart. I didn't understand that. That the way her home looked on the inside was, was a reflection of how she wanted to look on the outside. Beautiful, put together, organized, things in their places. I didn't get that at the beginning. It took me a long time to begin to realize that, you know what, I need to go there with her. And I'd much rather be doing other things. I'd much rather be, you know, watching the Kings or, well, maybe not the Kings, uh, 49ers, maybe someone who's winning. I'd much rather be home doing that. I'd much rather be home doing some other project. But I need to do that with her. And she needs to know that I'm in her world. And that's a reflection of her heart and her spirit and her soul, that inside of the house. And I just, at first, didn't really understand that. But you sacrifice. You give that up. Your time, your energy, whatever that might be, but you sacrifice that at those times. Secondly, by investing in her growth and her development as a woman and as a partner. By intentionally investing in her, making sure that she has what she needs, that she's being taken care of, that, that you're investing in whatever it is is her interests. And if it's school, getting her through school, and if it's something else, getting her... But really intentionally investing. Do you notice what he says here, that Jesus, so that he might sanctify her, that he might make her holy? Do you know what the word holy means? It means to cut or to separate or to push apart, to make something so unique and beautiful out of that, unlike anything else that he might sanctify her, right? So this is really, really important as we think about that. You know, one of the, the, the reasons that I stepped down from being a senior pastor 12 years ago into an associate role and moving over to Bridgeway has been just like a dream. It's been so cool uh, for me. But part of the reason that I made that switch in my life was that I had realized that for a long time, my wife had, Sherry, had, had just, she'd sacrificed a lot for me to be involved in ministry, and I love it. But she had sacrificed a lot in our family for me to be able to do that. And, uh, and I got to thinking as I, God was moving me in some different directions that, you know, this is, this is her season. This, I can make this her season. I can take a job that's a little less demanding, though it's still demanding. And, and, and we were starting to have grandkids, and like, that's the center of her world, man. She's doing that right now. She's over at the grandkids uh, taking care of them. And that's, I wanted to make sure she had the freedom for that. That's the investment. Does that make sense? Thirdly, by talking to her, and this may be the most important thing, guys, by talking to her. Notice how Paul phrases here, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Sometimes when we read that text, we think it means, oh, well, it means, you know, reading the Bible together and studying the Bible together and quoting Bible verses to each other and that kind of thing. That's not what it means. There are two words in the Greek language to discuss words or communication. One is logos, the other one is rhema. This right here is rhema. It talks and focuses on the act of speaking or the activity of speaking. And here's what he's saying. When you talk to her, you are cleansing her life. See, the very center of a woman's world, in the same way that respect is the center of a man's world, the center of a woman's world is if her husband talks to her. That communicates value that communicates that she's important, that communicates love to her. 
When a man is willing to talk with his wife, it communicates a ton. And if you won't listen to the Apostle Paul, just listen to Billy Joel. He knew it. Tell her about it. Tell her all your hopes and fears. Tell her all your hopes and dreams. She signed up to share your entire life. And so what often happens to us, right, and I, you know the statistics on this, right? Men use about 12,000 words a day. Right? Women use 25. So guys, when you come home from work, you've probably used your whole 12. She still has 13 left. And when she says, how was your day, what do we normally say? What is it, guys? Fine. <laughs> That's because we're linear, we're factual, and we're general as men. That's how our brains work. That's how they process communication. Linear, general, factual. We go with you know, mostly logic, left brain stuff. We're very factual, very general. When she asks that question, what is she wanting to hear? Ladies, you cannot say anything. She wants to know a whole lot more. Because, see, she hasn't been with you for eight or ten hours. What did he say? What did you say to that? How did you feel about that? What was going through your mind? How did you respond? You know, it's, you know you've been through this, right? What she is trying to understand is that there's more to your world, and she hasn't been able to be a part of it. And she signed up to be part of your life, all of it. But if you hold that back from her, then she feels, uh, I want to use the word invaluable, but it's, that's not it. She doesn't feel valued. In fact, here's what will happen. If a husband does not talk to his wife, she's not going to sit, she'll know something's wrong, but she's not going to think there's something wrong with him. You know what she's going to do? She's going to internalize it, and she's going to think there's something wrong with her. She'll sit there, and the internal conversation inside of her will go something like this. What's wrong with me that he doesn't want to talk to me? Uh, am I not pretty enough? Am I not listening enough? Am I not? What, what's wrong with me that he doesn't want to talk to me? Or that he won't share with me? Or that he won't open up his world to me? He won't open his heart to me or his emotions? She won't think that something's wrong with you. She will take it out on herself inside. And when you talk with her, when you converse with her, when you open your emotions and your heart, and you take that risk, and it's not easy for us, it goes against our natural wiring as men. It goes against our natural wiring, but when you can access that and give that to her, oh, it is a rare gift. Entertainer and musician Usher says it this way, the best present a man can give a woman is his full, undivided attention. His full, undivided attention. There's a final thing, all right? Sacrificial surrender, investing in her growth and development, talking to her. The final thing is by serving her in practical, daily, everyday kinds of ways. Practical, daily, everyday kinds of ways. Look at verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they love their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, body, but he nourishes it and he cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Now Paul quotes Genesis chapter 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, shall cleave or hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So guys, how many of you today showered? 
How many of you shaved? Thank you. I'm so glad you showered over there. How many of you shaved? How many of you brushed your teeth? How many of you flossed? Don't answer that question. We don't do that much. How many of you combed your hair? How many of you put on deodorant? How many of you... You cared for your body. How many of you exercise regularly? How many of you eat right? How many of you get the right amount of sleep? You take care of yourself. We all do that. So Paul draws this great analogy. He says, listen, the same way that every single day you do that over and over and over again, do that for your wife. She is your body. She's one with you in the same way that we are part of Christ's body. And so it's not something that we do once a year on Valentine's Day, guys. You know, it's not something that you know, we do you know, once a week. It's like every day, take care of her, nourish her, cherish her, watch out for her, do something nice for her. And whether it's just making her coffee in the morning or picking up your underwear when you throw it on the floor or whatever that might be, all right? Just serve her in very practical, daily, everyday kinds of ways. And now the final summary Paul says here in verse 33, and that's this. However, let each of you love his wife as he loves himself or his own body, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So what I want you to realize about this whole thing is that Paul is setting forth a new vision for marriage. This would have been absolutely abnormal in Paul's day. Marriage like this is not the way marriage was practiced. It didn't happen that way. Loving your wife was not ever found in secular literature, in Old Testament literature, in rabbinic literature, even in uh, the, the, the household codes of that day. It just wasn't something that was required. But Paul says God has got a different vision for marriage, and it comes from where he was originally back in the book of Genesis and how he wanted that to be. And it would be revolutionary. And the genius of this is this. Paul does not tear down the structure of marriage in ancient culture. He infuses it with a new dynamic, a missing dynamic, a lost dynamic that needed to be restored. And so he doesn't have to tear down the structure of marriage in order to get there. He actually starts the revolution from the inside. And it would have been absolutely subversive in that culture at that time. And the lost dynamic is this, resurrection. That's the lost dynamic that's needed in marriage, resurrection. And what do I mean by that? I die, I die to myself. It's my death for Christ's life. It's just the great exchange. My death for Christ's life. I die to my pride, my power, my ego. I die to my needs, my agenda. I die inside. And then Jesus fills me, and he lives his resurrected life through me to enable me to be the husband that I need to be. Same thing for a woman. You die to your control. You die to your own rights. You die to who you are. You die for the resurrected power of Jesus to flow through you and in you so that you can be empowered to do exactly what God wants you to do as a woman in that marriage relationship. It's really the dynamic for all of life, quite frankly. And it's so important. Liz Curtis Higgs was uh, an avowed feminist. In fact, militant feminist uh, in the 90s and the early 2000s. And uh, she had been hurt by men so much that she had decided she just she didn't want to have anything to do with men. Right? But she had this Christian friend 
who kept inviting her to go to church. And uh, she wouldn't go, and she wouldn't go, and she wouldn't go. And finally she said, okay, I'll go, just this one time. And so when they arrived at church that day, the pastor stood up and he began to talk from Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your husbands, submitting yourselves to your husbands. And man, it just nearly pulled her out of her seat. But she sat and she listened. And then she heard the second part of the verse. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And so she kept listening and she kept listening to that. And eventually she leaned over to a friend and she said, I would gladly give myself to a man who would die for me. And her friend said, there's a man who did die for you. His name is Jesus. And man, it wasn't long she struggled with that and she struggled, but it wasn't long before she surrendered her life to Christ. Now she's a Christian author and speaker. Jesus can change things, but it doesn't happen without Jesus. It doesn't happen without him. When a man and a wife practice mutual submission, the payoffs are huge. And I'm just going to give you four really quick at the end here. And uh, I'll, I'm sorry, if you want to get, grab me afterwards, I'll be happy to give them to you if you don't get them down. One, we make each other better. One of the whole purposes of marriage is, is to make us as individuals better people. We sharpen each other in the marriage relationship. There's something very sacred about this relationship when God places us together and it's designed for us to make one another better. My job is to make Sherry uh, the kind of woman that God made her to be, to fulfill her incredible potential as a woman, but as my partner as well in our marriage relationship. Her job is the same, is to help me to become the man that I need to be in that marriage relationship. And the two work together with one another. It's not always easy, and sometimes it hurts, but we sharpen one another in that process. Secondly, we experience a higher quality of relationship. When mutual submission takes place in a marriage, there's a higher quality of relationship. I mean, it brings so much life. It reduces selfishness and self-absorption. It diffuses conflict, initiates positive life-giving activities and, and interactions. It honors our natural God-given gender wiring. It leverages our God-given strengths in a collaborative relationship. It creates richer, more fulfilling experience of life together. When two people do this, man, there's just, there's a different quality of life that occurs. We strengthen the social structure. That's the third thing. We strengthen the social structure all around us. Study after study after study confirms when the marriage relationship in the family unit remains intact and strong, the likelihood of that marriage succeeding and surviving years and years and years is much higher. And when that happens and that family remains intact and the marriage remains intact, there's a greater likelihood that the whole social structure around them will flourish and thrive. And almost every study, social uh, sciences study, confirms this truth. This is because it's God's design. God made it this way. And then finally, and this may be the most important thing at all, of all, we fulfill a higher purpose. We become living illustrations of the kind of relationship that God wants to have with each one of us. See, there's no other relationship that does this than the relationship of marriage that pictures two people coming together in an all-in, fully soul-bonded, all chips are in on the table, life kind of commitment to one another, where they're going to do life together, every aspect of life for the rest of their lives. But that's exactly the kind of relationship that God wants to have with you. 
an all-in, deep, intimate, soul-shattering, soul-shaking kind of bonding that takes place with you in which he is the center of everything that you are and everything that you do, and he participates fully in every aspect of your life. He's not just like for some slice of the pie or some, you know, accessory that you throw on, uh, you know, on social occasions, but he's the one who is the living, risen Savior. And that's the kind of relationship God wants to have with us and it's the same in marriage. And when our marriages thrive and, and they portray that, we are this beautiful picture. This is what God desired. This is what God wants for every single person. So if you're sitting here or you're out there watching online and you've never, ever experienced that kind of relationship with Jesus Christ, you've never given your heart fully to him, then I want to encourage you tonight, find a quiet place, bow down, and give your life to Jesus. He is the only one who can make you whole again. And if your marriage is struggling here tonight, I want you to know that there's hope for you. That when Jesus comes into your life, he can make your relationship different. He can change you and he can change your partner. And he can give you power to live a different kind of life together with one another. And if you're a young adult here and you've never been married yet, but maybe you're looking at that prospect there are some wonderful things that you can start building into your life now to become the person that you want to become so that someday you will be the partner that God calls you to be in that marriage relationship. And if you're here tonight and you've struggled and you've had a failed marriage, I just want you to know God loves you with an everlasting love. And you're not damaged goods, though you will have baggage and junk in your life, but that Jesus can change that. He can restore you and he can bring wholeness again to your life. So I want to pray for us all here tonight, if I can, as we're closing here. Would that be okay to do? All right, good. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you. Oh, Lord, there's no relationship that is harder than this one. And Lord, even as I look at this text, I see so many areas where I fall incredibly short. I even think about my day-to-day and and just the ways that I was not the person that you wanted me to be in my marriage. And Lord, this is difficult, but we want to thank you that you are a God who forgives, that you are a God who restores, that when we turn back to you, that Lord, you give us a new start and a clean slate and we get to try again. And there's nothing better than that. So Lord, I pray for those who may be in the audience tonight, whether here on site or uh, at home, who are watching and listening in, oh Lord, I pray that you would reach out and that those who do not know you would give their hearts and their lives to you. I pray that you would fill them with your spirit, that you would start them on the path of a new life, that they would sense the freedom and the joy of belonging to you and knowing you in a deep and intimate kind of way for all of their lives and the rest of their lives. Lord, I want to give you marriages in this room that may be struggling and maybe almost ready to give up hope, and I pray that you would light a fire in them, that they would be different with one another, that they would begin to talk together again, to work things through, to work it out as hard as it may get, that you would give them the endurance to keep at it so that they can experience what you wanted them to experience and that they can be part of the higher purpose that you have for marriage. And Lord, I pray for young adults who might be in this audience tonight. Man, they have their whole future in front of them. 
And Lord, I pray that principles that are in this passage would be built into each one of their lives. Just take one thing, Lord, and press it upon them. That it would be something that they would give themselves to and want to become as they look at the future that you have for them. But wherever anyone might be, Lord, I pray that you would give them your goodness and your grace. And particularly those who've sensed um, or had a marriage failure. Oh God, would you let them know that you love them with an everlasting love, that you will never give up on them, and that, Lord, you have a future and a hope for them. So we give you ourselves tonight, Lord, fresh and new, and we want to thank you that you have been in this place, and thank you for this teaching from the Apostle Paul and your teaching through him, Lord. Help us to hang on to it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.